The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about the opiate epidemic. Why are we in so much pain? And I don't just mean physical pain. I mean emotional pain, because now it has gone beyond uh, taking pain pills for physical pain. You break your arm and so on. Uh, The addiction obviously reflects emotional pain as well. So today I have the two foremost experts on this topic. Now, President Trump, I hope you're listening, (laughs) because you should be calling on them to help you with, um, now that you have just declared a public health emergency over the opioid crisis, um, it would be good for you to take note <laughs> of who we have as, as experts. Um, first of all, Dr. Joseph Odette, Dr. Joe, he is a, um, a medical doctor. He got his degree at Harvard. He, is, uh, he also completed a residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Columbia. He is board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation and pain. He also went to the School of Traditional Chinese Medicine, and he integrates Chinese and complementary and alternative therapies into his treatment. He's the chief of the Department of Pain Medicine at Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates. Can't get better than that, but you can get equal. <laughs> and we have Dr. Alexios Karianopoulos, um, Dr. Alexios. He is an osteopathic physician who's board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation and pain medicine as well. He's the medical director of the Rhode Island Hospital Spine Center. He is the division director of pain medicine and rehabilitation medicine within the Department of Neurosurgery. He did his residency at Harvard Medical School. He did um, a, also at Mass General. He is a Harvard-trained medical acupuncturist, a U.S. Navy-trained specialist in diving and undersea medicine, and a 12-year veteran of the U.S. Navy Submarine Service. And I've just picked out the highlights. (laughs) So welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you, Carol. Hi, Carol. Now, um, I just want to give a couple of statistics that the the, uh, degree, the amount of this epidemic, the numbers are staggering. And... um, then, of course, you will add some medical and actual patient people um, reality to it so people can understand the, the depth of the crisis. Um, more than 64,000 people died in 2016 from drug overdoses, which means 91 Americans die daily from opioid overdose. That's the figure that you know, we really can relate to 90, every day. 91 Americans die from opioid overdose. I mean, this is supposed to be the greatest country in the world, and yet, and, and we have all kinds of um, opportunities and so on, and people are still killing themselves with opioids. Um, the, no, the number of opioid overdose deaths soared 200% between 2000 and 2014. So these are some of the statistics. Um, of course, you know, as I'll talk about later, uh, it's so interesting to me, you know, being the terrorist therapist and studying the impact of terrorism. There are so many things, including opiates, that have increased, so many bad things that have increased since 9-11. The opiate epidemic, uh, the obesity epidemic, alcoholism, uh, insomnia, suicide. I mean, you can't it's not a coincidence that all these things have increased since 9-11. Um, 
But um, before we get into all of that, let me just ask my experts, um, well, first of all, what you think about, um, why don't we talk about this, since this, this is the news, uh, what you think about Trump declaring the opioid crisis a public health emergency. Let's start with that. Which one of you wants to start? Alexa, do you want to comment on sure. that? Sure. So, you know, I think this... The, the fact that uh, President Trump declared this to be a public health emergency uh, frees up government agencies to put more resources toward fighting the epidemic. It's certainly a, a step in the right direction. Um, as Americans, we can't allow this continue, and it's time to really liberate our communities from uh, the scourge of drug addiction. Um, but I think there's still more work that needs to be done. Um, I think uh, there are still more monies that need to be allocated to help with uh, prevention. Right. Mm-hmm. For for example, there's this this program that started on the North Shore in in Massachusetts, this small town called Gloucester, where this police chief started um, instead of arresting uh, people on drug charges, he started uh, getting them the opportunity to get into long-term rehab facilities to try to kick the addiction, and he's showing uh, a significant change in the in the in, 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 you know, crime issues that they were having in Gloucester, which is one of these North Shore uh, seaside communities that was devastated by the, the opioid crisis. And I think it's that kind of thing where there have to be more specifics. You know, I, I do think it, it is a national emergency that we're, we've now gotten to the point in the United States where there are more deaths due to opioid uh, overdose than there are due to motor vehicle accidents. Mm. And, oh, wow. and so that, that's a real change in, 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 you know, our, our um, climate, and we have to do something about it. So I think that Trump is right to identify it, but we really need more concrete programs. And I think a lot of these small programs that we see in different communities that are working should be used as models that we can then see if it's possible to apply them on a national level. Mm-hmm. Right. I would agree. And just to differentiate, if I may, um, because Trump declared this crisis to be a public health emergency rather than a national emergency, no additional funds can be allocated. Now, that doesn't preclude the the administration from working with Trump uh, to uh, use some of these smaller programs like uh, Dr. Joe has has identified as um, a ways of improving access to patients for, you know, prevention and other uh, other treatment options. Um, But it definitely lowers the amount of money that can be usable right now. Yes, I was going to actually mention that, but the difference is just that it can't use, if it were a national emergency, it would be able to use uh, FEMA funds, and as a a, uh, public health emergency, it can't, but it it still can do other things, like um, by declaring it a public health emergency, it can accelerate temporary appointments of specialized personnel to address the emergency. It can um, work with the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, to expand access uh, by telemedicine. It can provide new flexibilities within HIV-AIDS programs and uh, also treatment at more facilities. And then there's this whole other thing with Medicaid. But what do you think about the things that I mentioned so far? How much do you think that they'll help? Uh, uh, temporary appointments, accelerated temporary appointments of specialized personnel. Uh, Then it says, of course, pending any funding needed. (laughs) What do you think about that? Well, I think I, I think it's um, highlighting the urgency of the issue. If anything, it's bringing it to um, uh, a significant you know, national forefront that even if these uh, allocations are temporary, um, it raises the bar to a new level where we've understood at a national level how much this crisis has affected us. Yes. What do you think about uh, telemedicine for addiction or anything? Well, the, I think the problem that they're identifying, which is a real one in pain management in general is a lot of these, uh, the crisis is spread, right? Not just to inner cities and the suburbs of cities, but now to these small rural towns where they don't really have necessarily the medical resources that you would see in a major metropolitan area. So I thought the thought behind it, I don't know if it, if it really can be implemented in a, in a realistic way is to give access to individuals who are in need or, or, or maybe desiring 
treatment um, to some type of telemedicine approach to that rather than, you know, sending them out of state or uh, across, you know, a, a large distance away from their family or what have you to, to get treatment. The problem is, will the treatment actually be effective? And the problem, and the, and the reality is maybe not, but at least maybe as, a, as an initial way to, to do diagnostics, to, to, uh, to get an intake eval, maybe telemedicine would be a way to better identify what the issues are with a particular individual in, in these small rural towns where they don't have the, the access to medical personnel that we would have in larger cities and metropolitan areas. Right. Yes, you know, um, yeah, I agree with you. And, and um, just the, the idea of telemedicine, and I know that, you know, I mean, the problem is there aren't enough doctors to go around. That's the problem. Right, um, right. Especially but, not enough addiction specialists or, uh, yeah. you know, that's another, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, is that, um, is that also a particular problem, that there aren't enough addiction doctors? I, I, I think absolutely. it is. Yeah. Go ahead, I know Joe. in our organization there's been a push to get more primary care doctors able to prescribe, for example, Suboxone, which is a, a medicine now that's being used to help uh, people um, with addictions to to give them an agent that mimics what opioids or heroin does to, to our brain, but does it in a much safer way so that they can have a, a more normal life and, 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 and remain part of the community without doing, you know, these sorts of drugs that can lead to, to death. So because there's such a small number of these addiction specialists, even in a, in a city like Boston, there's a big push to try to get primary care more educated about it and involved in, in knowing how to prescribe it appropriately. You know, I, I would imagine it is hard to um, get more doctors to be addiction specialists because the population is so difficult to work with. I mean, what, tell us about some of your uh, <laughs> difficult patients. Obviously not by name, but I mean, you know, it can be very frustrating, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Go, go ahead, Joe. All right. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we regularly evaluate patients who are being sent, you know, out of desperation, often from the primary care doctor, trying to understand what to do about them, where they'll have both histories of major psychiatric issues, uh, documented issues with substance abuse, and, of course, then you throw in chronic pain. And so that, that trifecta, that, that type of patient presents very frequently. We'll, we have this woman that, that I, her name, was just, I'll just call her Gloria, but she came from one of these North Shore communities and, and was definitely involved with the, with the street drug issues and, and um, had a history of, of childhood abuse. So she, you know, from a very early age, her, her parents were both drug abusers, and there was a lot of abuse that occurred both emotionally and sexually when she was young, so she ended up with um, this borderline personality disorder, and before you know it, Gloria was also using drugs on the street, but then um, in the context of that and trying to work also part-time as a waitress, injured her back, mm. and then you know suddenly now she has... In, in quotes, a legitimate, a legitimate reason to have mm. pain medicines and quickly got on OxyContin, which is one of these medicines, a derivative of oxycodone that has, has caused some of this problem and then escalated the dose to these high levels. She was on 80 milligrams three times a day and so was in severe pain and is sent to us. And so what we initially do with every patient like this is we check a urine drug screen and we found out that she also was using street drugs. So while on the OxyContin, she also had evidence on her mm-hmm. urine drug screen of using street drugs. And so then we're in this situation where we have a patient with pain but with clear addiction disorder and needs detox but needs addiction services. And it's really hard to marshal that troop, even in a, in a very sophisticated organization like ours where we have psychiatrists, we have addiction people, but it's, it's hard to pull that team together in a, in a patient that may not be that cooperative and really is not 
looking to stop her Oxycontin and is not really ready yet to deal head-on with her addiction disorder. And, and so it can be difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Dr. Alexios, did you want to add something? No, I, I, I see these patients every day, and I think um, the, the crux of the situation is that um, it involves, uh, you know, so many psychosocial variables that, that come into play in these patients' daily lives and their family lives, their vocational and avocational interests. Um, you literally see these patients' lives spiraling out of control. Um, and, you know, I think and part of it has to do with social isolationism um, and uh, looking for other ways of, of treating um, um, other things going on with their life. Uh, but, you know, it's very difficult to watch the process of some of these patients going through this, uh, this addiction problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think our society is, is, is different than other industrialized societies. If you, if you look at the statistics, we use 99% of the world's hydrocodone or Vicodin. Hmm. And it's not like we have different types of pain problems or, or, or you know, issues of, of depression and so on, or even it's not necessarily the case that we have a higher inherent rate of addiction disorders, but there's something about the, what happens in the United States and, and I think social isolation, the lack of maybe a strong family ties, uh, or communities that lead people, I think, to, to, to look for comfort in drugs as opposed to looking for comfort with social relationships mm-hmm. or family or community. And so I think in Europe you see, even though they have problems with addiction, they certainly have some of these problems. It's nowhere near the level that we see mm-hmm. in this country. Mm-hmm. All right, this is all very interesting. We need to take a break, though, and, but we will be back. Um, we're talking today with Dr. Alexios and Dr. Joe um, about the opioid crisis and the newly um, the new proclamation by President Trump calling it a public health emergency. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carroll is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carroll wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarroll.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarroll.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking today about the opiate epidemic and asking why are we in so much pain. 
and I mean not just physical pain, but primarily uh, emotional pain that we're uh, abusing opiates more than we need for just to cover whatever physical pain we have. My guests are the illustrious Dr. Alexios Karianopoulos and the equally illustrious Dr. Joseph Odette. Um, and I was going through some of the things that the new, uh, that President Trump's new proclamation calling the opioid crisis a public health emergency uh, includes. And so one of the things is that uh, there, he would announce a new policy to allow treatment, I'm sorry, uh, wait, provide new flexibilities within HIV AIDS programs. Do you know, what does that have to, do you know what that's about? Well, you know, in, in this a cohort of uh, patients, I'm not I'm, I'm not knowledgeable exactly on that policy, but I know in this cohort of patients who are often um, sharing needles, uh, there have been particular instances of communicable diseases such as HIV and hepatitis that have had um, a, a a large rise in certain communities, especially in the Midwest. So it it, it may pertain in some part to that. Mm-hmm. Right. I think yeah. So if if someone is identified in that setting as having HIV, ideally, if you then have the flexibility, if you also identify that they have a heroin addiction, in theory, if, if there was money and funds, you could then channel resources not just to treat their HIV, but to potentially also get appropriate care for their addiction disorder. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, obviously, it's not, you know, this is, it's painting a, with a broad brush. So I think there are certain communities where that's more of a problem and others that are that uh-huh. less of a problem, yeah. And then last but not least, um, now as part of this emergency response, uh, it will, the, the new, you know, calling it that, will overcome a restrictive 1970s era rule that prevents states from providing care at certain treatment facilities. So, in other words, in the Medicaid program, uh, there is a prohibition against using federal Medicaid funds at facilities that treat mental health or substance use disorder, or if they have more than 16 beds. You know, this is an arbitrary thing. More than, sorry, you're number right. 17. You have to leave. Right. <laughs> what, what can you tell us about that? Uh, I, I think that that's probably, again, uh, something that goes back and was a, sort of the law of unintended consequences where trying to avoid putting patients in large and maybe poorly staffed mental health institutions um, was, was something that, that I, I think was, uh, was a real problem, and maybe this number 16 came out to try to um, artificially say, well, you know, in, mental health institutions that have larger than 16 beds may um, be uh, less able to provide the right care and the individualized care that these patients need. Now, with this, with this crisis of addiction, that limitation prevents the, there being enough beds. There literally are not enough beds for, for the patients that are identified and that want treatment for their addiction. And the studies definitely show that the only way to really have success and to prevent recidivism where the, the patients, you know, get sh- short-term addiction treatment and then are back on the streets is to get them access to these long-term uh, addiction rehab facilities, um, but they're not enough beds. So yes. I, I think, the, you know, maybe trying to overcome this could help, uh, you know, but then uh, why that law was in place to begin with is a little bit hard to understand. Well, yes, and I think that that was a super big mistake that was made um, to uh, close these big state mental hospitals. When I was chief resident at Bellevue, um, one of, for one of the years, I also was uh, chief resident at um, Manhattan State Psychiatric Hospital, and, um, and that I've done some consulting to some state hospitals before they disappeared. And uh, these people, although, yes, you know, was it, was it ideal as far as um, did each patient get enough hours with a psychiatrist? Not necessarily, but it was certainly a lot better than what happened, which is when they uh, made these hospitals disappear, the people wound up on the streets and then wound up in prison. So now they are these, the population that was in the, a lot of the population that was in these 
state mental hospitals are now in our prisons and not getting yeah. any treatment. Right. And now yeah. we have this other problem that's developing where there, there are just so few of these larger institutions available that could potentially treat addiction that, that, that people, I know from, for example, this Gloucester program in this small community on the North Shore of Massachusetts, they're sending people all over the country to find a bed. They'll send people to Florida. They'll send people to, hmm. uh, to you know, Texas. I mean, there really, really is a shortage of these facilities, and especially with regard to the long-term treatment facilities. Yes, that's really, really unfortunate. Right. So now, let's talk about um, how we got into this mess to begin with. I mean, besides the fact that there is more psychological pain these days than before, um, I know before the show started, um, Dr. Joe, you started talking about how how this thing, how this mess all started with overprescribing. So take us through the chronology. Yeah, I think there was this movement in the 1990s to start taking pain seriously, which we should. You know, it's the greatest scourge to human society is suffering with pain, and and so there was a recognition of this. And as they were looking at how to do it, there was this idea that well, we should do the same thing that we do. Uh, for the patients with cancer-related pain, we should also start treating patients with non-cancer pain, just your typical low back pains and, and you know, musculoskeletal pains and arthritic pains and not allow them to suffer and use the greatest medicine that we, we know to treat pain and that are these opioids. So by the mid to late 1990s, there was a strong movement um, that was trying to educate physicians about how to use opioids for what was then called non-cancer pain, which, which is really your, your, the typical pains that we all suffer as, as we go through life and age and have problems with our backs and so on. And so there, in that period of time, between 1999 and 2014, the amount of opioid prescriptions in the, U, in the United States quadrupled. So there was this tremendous rise in the prescription of opioids. So the, this public health endeavor to try to eradicate pain w- led to this tremendous increase in the prescription of opioids. What's interesting is during that same period of time, there was absolutely no evidence that there was less disability related to pain. In fact, it, it was clear that the, the, there was this growing rise in the rate of disability due to pain issues. So it had really no effect on the, on the actual outcome that, that, that was desired, and that was to reduce pain enough where people would become less disabled, they become more functional, they could live a more normal quality of life. And what it instead did was flood the communities with prescription opioids. And so during that same period of time, there was um, evidence that the the non-medical use of these prescription drugs also dramatically increased. And so an agent like oxycodone um, was starting to be used um, by teenagers. So a lot of of, of our patients, pain doctors' patients, would have these prescriptions in their medicine cabinet and teenagers would, would borrow them like, you know, a teenager will. And, and before you know it, you were getting these young people addicted to these prescription drugs. The problem was these prescription drugs cost a tremendous amount to, um, to buy on the street, called maintain your habit. And so very, very quickly, there was a shift from using prescription drugs on the street to, to heroin. And so that, that shift started occurring in the mid-2000s. And... So from about 2005 to our current date, there's been this tremendous shift now from opioid-related deaths, where in the early 2000s, it was mostly due to prescription drugs. So the teenager that gets a hold of their parents' Oxycontin takes too much and, and dies of an overdose. Now, you know, starting in the mid-2000, like 2010 going forward, suddenly we saw more and more heroin deaths. And it's really the same population, but it's, it's because the access to the prescription drugs 
was more expensive, was, was more difficult to get, and, and, and yet now people had these habits that they had to maintain, heroin being very cheap, um, and so the, there, was, there was a real shift then, and now it shifted even further because now there's this other drug on the street called fentanyl, and it's a white powder. It, it looks everything like heroin looks like, but you can't really tell if it's mixed in with the heroin. And now there's more and more deaths related to fentanyl, which is about something in the order of 50 to 100 uh, times more potent than morphine. Um, and, and so people who are used to being on heroin, which is a, uh, an agent that's somehow related to morphine, suddenly gets an agent that's 50 to 100 times more potent, and now they're dying because of their fentanyl use. So it's really been this transition from this flood of prescription drugs that occurred in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then the economics of that led to uh, shifting to heroin, and now the economics of drug dealing is such that you can produce this fentanyl even cheaper than the heroin, which is extremely potent, and now the, the, the crisis is leading to deaths related to this fentanyl use. So it's the drug dealers who want to make more money by not telling the, their customers that, um, that there's fentanyl in it. Yeah. And the, and the question is, you, you might ask, well, why would they do that if it's going to lead to the death of their customer? Yeah. Yeah. But the reason is those survivors, the ones that survive, will suddenly have a much more um, aggressive habit to maintain. So the fentanyl is so much more potent once, if they survive. I don't know if this is how the drug dealer calculates it, but certainly from a, from a public health perspective, if, if you use this heroin laced with fentanyl and you don't overdose, your habit will, will, will be vastly increased because the fentanyl is so much more potent. So to maintain your habit, you're going to have to buy more. You're going to have to get more drug to, to be able to, to keep yourself from going into withdrawal. And it's that habit that keeps the drug dealers in business. And with the fentanyl, I think it creates this even stronger habit um, that, that, that leads that individual to, to seek more and more drug. Well, I guess there should be more punishment, a bigger punishment for drug dealers who do uh, mix the heroin with fentanyl. I mean, I mean, really, they should be... Um, it's not just drug uh, possession and distribution. It it's, should be murder, right? Right, I, I think so. I think there's been attempts to do that in New York City, and um, I've, I've heard because of the model in New York City that there's been some talk in Massachusetts. I think there are legal issues with that to, to make that tie, to be able to directly tie mm-hmm. um, that event of someone overdosing uh, to a drug dealer and get the murder charge to stick. But I agree. I mean, it, now that the, and it's not just fentanyl. Now they're using this other agent that's even more potent than fentanyl that's, that's used to uh, tranquilize elephants, basically. That's a mm. derivative of fentanyl that's called carfentanyl. And so that's even, I think that's something like uh, 10,000 more time, 10,000 times more potent uh, than morphine. Huh, it's just crazy. I mean, yes, there have been stories about, I think it was a, a cop or an investigator or something who went in, I guess they were doing a drug bust and he just inhaled it and died or got sick. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it, yeah right. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's possible. It's so it's so potent, and especially in a opioid naive person, but even in these heroin addicted patients, because really heroin is like morphine in its potency. And once you go to these fentanyl products, you're really you're you're throwing the dice. You're really at risk, no matter how veteran a, a heroin addict you may be. You're it's tremendous, and so in that regard, it is extremely devious by the drug dealers and. And that would be another thing that would be, you know, to put more teeth into the, into the, uh, the you know, sort of the, the DEA and the, and the drug enforcement agency to somehow try to find ways to make this yes. something like, a, you know, a murder offense as opposed to a, just a, another drug charge. Yes. You know, there was a story this week in the paper 
about a dog. Did you happen to read that? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, a dog that got exposed, and um, there are now veterinary uh, applications for Narcan because of these uh, police dogs that are going around and sniffing for drugs. Oh, my God. Well, and this was another, this was a different story. This was just a plain old dog, I mean, a nice dog, cute dog, uh, that a man took on a walk in his neighborhood, and he was going to near where the bus, the school bus stop is, and his dog was like sniffing on the ground, as he does, and he came upon something, and all of a sudden the dog keeled over. And the man oh. took the dog home. And uh, he was trying to, you know, see whether the dog would get better, and he wasn't getting better. And he took him to a vet, and it turned out that the vet thought that he had, there was a cigarette box. That was one of the things he sniffed. And the vet thought that maybe um, it was the cigarette box or something on the ground that had some fentanyl in it. And she gave the dog the, whatever the vet equivalent is of Narcan, and the dog um, was okay. Mm, Wow. Gary's times. And, and so now we have to worry about taking dogs for a walk. Yeah. And yeah. not to mention that it was by a school bus stop. You know, what about kids? Right. Right. The kids, I know. Sit the on kids the grass. Pick it up or just get a little on their fingers and lick their fingers. And, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really tragic. It's, um, so it, it, it is, you know, it's certainly a public health crisis, but I guess the problem is, is, is stating it as a public health crisis enough or you know is is there a way like you say if it was really a national emergency that we could use other funds but well, well let, me just, let me just yeah. stop you there because we do need to take another break um so we will come back uh to that point and uh, let me again introduce my guests dr joseph odette and dr alexios uh Karinopoulos. And we're talking today about opiates, the opiate crisis, because it's just been called a public health emergency by President Trump. We will be back with more of the story. Obviously, as you can tell, it's a really complicated situation, a complicated crisis and a devastating crisis. So we will be back with more. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com welcome back to dr carol's couch if you have a question or comment for dr carol dial toll free at 1-866-472-5788 now back to the show here's dr carol lieberman and welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about the opiate epidemic. Why are we in so much pain? And, of course, my answer to all of that is uh, to why we're in so much pain, psychological pain, is um, because we are 
consciously and unconsciously burdened by 9-11. And yes, um, as uh, Dr. Joe was saying, that was the 90s or, or the, hun- the 2000s, you know, th- that was a, reflected a, an increase in, in this philosophy to give patients more pain meds to um, help them to, so that they didn't have to live every day with, with pain, which is incredibly depressing and debilitating and all that. But, and yes, of course, that's a part of it, but I also think a part of it is uh, the pain, the psychological pain we are all car- carrying, although many of us are in denial about it, the impact of terrorism on us. Um, but I think that that's part of it, too. One of the things I want to talk about is uh, this new thing that happened this week, too, where, or at least it was announced this week, Walgreens announced that um, they are going to be stocking in their store over the count- as an over-the-counter med, not prescription, Narcan, which um, is, a, is supposed to help uh, with opioid overdose. It reverses the effect of opioids. And um, now you can, <laughs> you can go to Walgreens. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, God, it's just so, uh, you know, 50 years ago, somebody would have said this, that this was going to happen, and people would have laughed at that. Oh, we need, we need a, an antagonist to opioids in, our <laughs> in Walgreens, you know, right in the corner drugstore. Um, but it is not a laughing matter. And um, so I want to ask the two of you, Dr. Alexios and Dr. Joe, what you think about this. Well, I personally think it's a, it's a good idea. Um, it, it's a, um, Narcan is an opioid antagonist, so it'll counter-affect the immediate effects of opioids. But it's just one um, tool that, that should be uh, used uh, but should also be widely accessible. But we really need to look at uh, opioid um, detoxification and opioid treatment in the, uh, in the context of a long-term chronic illness. I mean, opioid disuse disorder is a long-term disease now. It can be thought of just like any other long-term disease. So even though Narcan can reduce uh, the fatal, a fatal episode, it's not going to prevent a long-term um, opioid um, uh, use behavior. Uh, so it still needs to be in the context of a long-term treatment paradigm. Yes. Right. And what do you yeah. think about, um, I was concerned when I heard about this, about the, uh, having the opposite effect, that yes, it may well save some lives by people having easier, quicker access to it uh, when someone is in an opioid overdose crisis. But on the other hand, is it going to make people think, oh, well, I can abuse opioids because I can go to Walgreens or other stores, other stores are carrying it too, uh, and get an antagonist and I'll be okay. I think it's a great uh, question. Um, the data, though, really hasn't uh, borne out. There's simply no evidence um, uh, through several studies that uh, having access to, to the drug antidote Narcan uh, will promote more behavior. In fact, if you, uh, a correlate to that, um, uh, in a 1998 study from researchers at Johns Hopkins found that needle exchange programs generally reduce the spread of, of, of HIV without increasing drug use. Uh, the World Health Organization also also found uh, through decades of research produce similar results. So I think um, the the idea of promoting drug use um, uh, akin to uh, using uh, or, uh, uh, furnishing condoms for sex education would promote uh, sexual activity hasn't been borne out in the research. Yeah, I think the other aspect of this is is thinking about the unintended use. So having that, like that dog, for example, or or, or, you know, having, you know, the, the child in the house that somehow gets a hold of it and is not really someone with an addiction disorder, but somehow gets a little bit of dust of fentanyl and, and, and then is dead. So to have this available in that regard, I think, makes sense. But it, it is the case. There's, there's been a study recently in Massachusetts that showed that in general, if you survived an overdose, your chances of overdosing again in the next year are around 25%. But wow. I, I don't think that's necessarily because they have naloxone or Narcan available, but it's just that this is a person who, as Alexios, Dr. Alexios said, has a chronic disease. They have this addiction disorder. So, you know, getting them the Narcan, having them survive that first event doesn't take away that di- addiction disorder. And if they don't get the right treatment, before you know it, they're, they're going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, take too much drug, and, 
and at a higher rate than uh, another person, they're, they're likely to overdose again. So it, it really has to be part of a comprehensive approach, but I, I don't think it's, it's, it's the wrong idea, but it's not well, enough. And you were mentioning during the break about how some doctors uh, give out a prescription for Narcan or Naloxone um, when they, if they prescribe an opioid to them that so they'll have it, kind of like having an EpiPen in the house so that it's available, like a safety. Right, a safety. So if you have this prescription in your house, then somebody gets a hold of the drug inappropriately, you at least have something to save a life, yeah. And so in that regard, it's not maybe even necessarily for the patient themselves that you're prescribing the opioids to, but more for the unintended use the inappropriate use in many cases, but still, um, it's, you know, the reality of this is happening. And so give, give these families something to, that they can do about it immediately because by the time your emergency services get there, it's often too late. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, did you hear the story? <laughs> Sounds like a, I'm going to tell a joke. But <laughs> did you hear the news yeah. about, um, I think it was in Ohio, that I'm not positive that there were some. I think this this issue is coming up all over the place. That some, but some cop, some police um, uh, director, division head, uh, decided that in some in the town decided that he wasn't going to let the cops who work for the police department in that town carry Narcan or Naloxone with them because he didn't, because it was very expensive. They were having such a crisis. It was Ohio, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? I haven't heard this story, but I'm shocked. Okay. And, and because it was so expensive, there was such a crisis. So many people were using it that when the cops would go out, you know, it was very expensive to have to keep administering this antidote, expensive in terms of the time of the cops, you know, when they're not doing, instead of you know, <laughs> doing some other crime. And... Um, and also just the, the substance, stocking, that's how much they were using. The, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, and so, of course, this was a whole big moral question. Well, you know, I think that leads to often another issue that's come about that um, uh, often uh, l- drug ab- abuse disorders or opioid use disorders are, are very stigmatized. Um, and uh, um, for many people in the public, I think society um, uh, feels as though uh, these behaviors are, are due to bad judgment um, or self-inflicted wounds. And, uh, you know, there have been uh, lawmakers that have been quoted as, as saying, um, you know, maybe if we don't prevent some of these overdoses, we can remove uh, some of these uh, people from the gene pool. So mm-hmm. I think part, mm-hmm. of the, uh, part of the issue in treating addiction is removing some of the stigma, stigmatization and treating um, uh, opioid use disorder and addiction as a chronic medical disease. But part of that is, as physicians, we have to be more cognizant of the risk of when we do write these opioids for patients with pain. And I think Absolutely. As, as we were talking, the pendulum has really shifted in this other direction now where there is a stigma attached for physicians writing opioids for pain in, in the sense that medical boards now are, are being more aggressive about monitoring doctors who, who do write prescriptions for pain. It's become ever more difficult to write a prescription of an opioid for pain in terms of, of the, the bureaucratic issues that you have to face in terms of paperwork and so on to, 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 to do that. And even as a, a surgeon in a post-operative situation, there are new laws, for example, in the state of Massachusetts that limits how many uh, pills that a, a, a surgeon can give a patient in a post-op setting for fear that if they give them too many pills, they'll be contributing to this opioid crisis. And yes, this, I, think, in, I think it's gone too far in that direction. There is right. like this whole big brother, you know, the government trying to tell doctors how to practice medicine. Right, right. It's a problem, and it would be wonderful if doctors had been better about self-policing and self-monitoring our behaviors. I would say that, unfortunately, we weren't that great at it uh, during this, this period of the late 90s, early 2000s. I think there's been a lot of good work done in, in more recently in the last 10 years that I think was adequate to, to deal with this issue. And 
one of the things we'll have to worry about is as the pendulum is swinging in this other direction where physicians are now more fearful of writing opioids, there's ever more restrictions on the writing opioids that will we be unable to treat legitimate pain problems and will mm-hmm. some of those patients then be put into a situation where they, they may start seeking street drugs. Yeah. And I don't know that that's going to happen. You know, will that happen to a person with no addiction history, just with a severe pain issue, somehow going out to the streets to seek drugs? I don't know. But that's, that is a, a fear that, that we hear in the pain community, both among patients and clinicians. Yes. Right. Well, you know, there certainly is um, more, at least more of a, a trend towards education of physicians. I just... In the recent months, I had to renew my New York and California physician's license. And for, in both cases, um, especially in New York, my God, it was, you had to take this course and, uh, before they would renew your license. And right. it was especially the New York one. They had all, it was a huge course, and you had to, um, you had to send in pr- Well, you always have to send, well, no, I guess not always, but... Well, with these, with things having to do with opioids and drugs in general, they've been asking for proof, and it's a, it's really a, um, a very extensive kind of course that you need to prove that you took in these kinds of things, um, all the different kinds of opioids, opiates, all the different, just, just, it was really uh, like never before. Right, right. I think every state is is scrambling to try to find a way to legislate themselves out of the, of the crisis, I would say most of it, especially now as the crisis has shifted over to the heroin and fentanyl problems, has been largely ineffective. There's, despite ever-growing number of regulations in the state of Massachusetts about the writing of opioids, there's been this steady increase in opioid-related deaths. Mm-hmm. But, and yeah. I think, you know, the problem is now it's unfortunately, because maybe it would be easier to control and regulate, it's less about prescribed opioids than it used to be, although that was a really big problem in the early uh, part of this, of this century. But, and now it's, it's more about the, the, you know, the use of these other agents, fentanyl, heroin, and, and that, that's a whole other yeah. problem that, that, that we're all facing now. Yes, and of course, um, you know, so much of it besides the real, uh, the real pa- the physical pain, so much of it is psychological, and it's super important to be getting that aspect involved in the treatment as well, and I know you both do that. Well, let Absolutely. me thank my guests. You are um, the experts, Dr. Joseph Odette and Dr. Alexios Karanopoulos. Thank you so much for um, coming on Dr. Carol's Couch. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 